Uh, first, I want to say thank you for doing this podcast well, with I'm me. I'm very interested in doing it and seeing how it turns out. So I'm going to ask you some questions about your weightlifting history. Um, okay. We'll basically go a bit chronological. So I'm curious, Jim, what were your early athletes like? Uh, not the big names that everybody knows, but the guys you found in the gym curious about Olympic-style lifting. Were they more into getting bigger or more interested in seeing how much they could lift? When I started in the gym business in 1968, I was, uh, you know, wanted to do all the, all aspects of weightlifting, but gyms in those days were primarily bodybuilding gyms. So my gym, in order to, you know, make a profit, you had to, you know, cater to the bodybuilders. And it was like, if people wanted to bench press big and have big arms, but I had weightlifting platforms and was doing weightlifting. So a few people uh, would see that and they would try it. And so I had, like, as my first lifter that I trained that really kind of got into competition was a guy by the name of Nick Ayala. And he was, he got to be pretty good, not, not to the level of Ken Clark or Mario Mar Martinez, but he was, so I just had a few guys that would train along and uh, just kind of, you know, out of curiosity would, would do it. it my uh, coaching really started, took off when Dan Cantore moved to San Francisco in 1970 and trained, trained with me. And, and I really wasn't coaching him at first, but I gradually I took over his training, uh, programming and coaching him. But uh, my bypassed Walt Giuseppe. Walt Giuseppe was a guy I met at the YMCA back in 1963 at a contest, the first one I ever saw. And he kind of introduced me to the weightlifting, uh, competitive weightlifting community. And so that uh, kept my interest going. So in 1968, when I opened my own gym, I wanted to have uh, you know the weightlifting as part of it. And how did you approach writing those first programs? Well, uh, you know, it was it's. Uh, you know, we, we just kind of play it by ear, you know. Uh, we do some snatches and we do some cleans and we, you know. So it basically broke it down to power snatch, power clean, uh, clean deadlift, uh, power jerks off the rack, uh, back, front squats and back squats and overhead squats and so we just, we just kind of, uh, winged it, didn't I? You know, I followed programs that I'd learned from Strength Health Magazine was kind of our Bible for weightlifting in those days. And Tommy Cono wrote these articles, ABCs of weightlifting. So I would use a lot of stuff that uh, Tommy Cono had uh, written and it's in his books that he has out today. Okay, and a lot of that uh, set and rep was based around the 5x5? Five five? Right, right. With, in those days, I had a lot of young young guys, and so we did five reps uh, in, in everything. And then eventually, as they got, you know, that, that was so we developed their uh, technique and their conditioning and workout capacity. And then, uh, you know, everybody wants to lift heavier weights. And so we would slowly, you know, start gradually doing fewer reps and heavier weights. But first I wanted to make sure that their technique, uh, was good before we go very heavy. Yeah, that is so key. Uh, I yeah. find so many guys, they, they say, oh, I'm ready to lift 90 kilos, 100 kilos. But then the technique isn't there for it. Uh, how was it that you came then to coach at the Pan Am World and Olympic levels? Was there a point where you needed to make contacts or? No, I, because I was producing high level athletes. Like I said, Walt Giuseppe was sort of the first guy I coached at the national level. And then Dan Cantori, uh, who made the Olympic team in 1972. And of course, uh, Ken Patera came to train with me in 1971. And he made the Olympic team and set all the American records. and. And so because of my success with these guys, and what, and what I had uh, is more than programming is I have an eye of what a person can lift. So they had, they had a lot of success with me because I would say, well, let's take 120 kilos, not 125. 
you got to you'll make one twenty, you'll miss one twenty-five, and I and I was right more often than than not, and I was especially right ninety-nine percent more than a lifter is. Lifters always think they can lift more than they really can, and so because they would have success following my uh, recommendations, then I just evolved to be more and more of a coach. And and in nineteen seventy-five. Uh, I went to the Pan American Games in Mexico City to coach uh, Dan Cantori and Bruce Wilhelm, the two guys I had on the team. And the two coaches there, whose names I won't mention, they did not know kilograms. <laughs> they were in the United States. In the United States, we were still using pounds. Uh-huh. But see, at my gym, we were using kilograms because I had, you know, some illegal barbells, and so we used kilos. So I went down there, and, and these guys were lost because they didn't know what's 160 kilos. I was going to watch the 350 pounds. How, how do you, what is that, you know? And so I just sort of, Helped them out and kind of took over coaching the team because I in, in competition you've got to be able to make decisions fast. You can't be looking at a conversion chart to see how much weight you want to lift. And so my the fact that I so I always tell people kilos is my second language and that's how I got to be a coach. And but, but primarily I got to be a coach because you know having success and then then other people come to want to train with you because you had a good program and you were successful. So that just brought more and more people. But. Uh, a couple guys, so, I, so I, Dan Cantori came to San Francisco because he was going to go to the University of Berkeley. And then Ken Patera came because I was having success with Dan Cantori. And uh, then Bruce Willem came because of the success I had with Ken Patera. But, uh, you know, guys like Ken Clark, he was a walk-in off the street. He just walked in. He always wanted to build himself up for football. And he and his buddy walked in and were training. I, you know, they, I have a basic beginner program. They're 15 years old. And I would just set them up on a basic general fitness weightlifting, pro- weight training program. And they saw us doing the weightlifting, so they wanted to try it. And so Ken wasn't very good, but this other kid was really good. But he didn't stay, and Ken did, and Ken went on to win, you know, six national championships and placed fifth at the Olympics and things like that. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, so just ha- that's how I got to be a, be a coach and be selected for international teams is because I was putting lifters on the teams, and my lifters were breaking American records. Okay, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, yeah, when you have success like that, then people come calling you. Right. And we didn't have the training center like we do in Colorado Springs now. So now, you know, although we still have, you know, so many of our top athletes come from, you know, little uh, regional training centers like, you know, Kendrick Ferris comes from uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, and uh, several people come from different parts of the country. Uh, the, the, the training center doesn't work for everybody, but it is, a, it is a good program that we have at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. When did that officially start? Well, that started, we, we tried it in the middle 80s, and then it just didn't work for one reason or other. Well, we didn't have enough funding, I, was, I guess. And then when I, I, was, I was president of USA Weightlifting from 1988 to 1996, and we started that, that training center up in 1990 under my, under my watch. And we hired uh, Lynn Jones to be the director of it. And then uh, a little while later, we hired uh, Dragomir Chorosland. So Lynn Jones, Lynn Jones became the coaching director of education and programs. And uh, Dragomir Chorosland was hired to be the resident training coach. So we started the resident training program in late 1990 or maybe early 1991. And, it's, and, it's, and it doesn't work for everybody. Some people like, uh, like Tim McRae and Wes Barnett, it's fantastic, but there's several other lectures over the years that went out there, and it just didn't work. They, they do better when they're in their home environment. But for some people, it, it works just terrific. So it's, it's, it's a must for any uh, country to have a training center where their lifters can go and have the option to train there if they're, own, if they're if it's better than their situation where they come from. Yeah, yeah, sure. You've you got to have that option. Um, yeah. I, I'm sure there's some countries. It's funny, being here in Turkey, 
um, you don't see this kind of local club, regional club. Uh, it's always surprised me since I came here. You, you can go somewhere. They say they've got an Olympic-style weightlifting club, but it's not there. So I think here it really is the design that they're handpicking people and they're just going through that elite national center. Right. You see that? And see, weightlifting is, in a lot of countries, it's not that expensive uh, of a sport. You know, like in swimming, you need a big swimming pool. And in gymnastics, you need a big gym with all kinds of equipment. Of course, track and field, you need, you know, all kinds of space. But weightlifting, you just need, you know, uh, you know, about 10,000 square feet and you can have a training center. And, you know, about, you know, a dozen barbells and racks and away you go. And so, uh, a lot of countries like, you know, like Turkey and then, like, you know, the most successful countries in weightlifting, that's what they do. They select their weightlifters. And if you don't keep up, then they, you know, you're gone. You know, they bring in the next kid. Where in the United States, we are a walk-on program. Kids have to walk on into our, into our gym and want to do it. If you go and tap a talented kid on the shoulders and say, Hey kid, you'd be a champion weightlifter. Oh, by the way, uh, you got to pay. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you got to pay gym dues. You got to pay coaching fees, and you got to pay travel and all that stuff. Whereas in, you know, Turkey and uh, a lot of the countries that do very, very well, they say you become a weightlifter, and we'll take care of those things for you. Especially if you're good, and the better you get, the more you know financial perks you get. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. I, I remember reading one of your interviews, and you were saying about, you know, an American kid. You say, hey, you got a future at this and they say well my future's in football or basketball right. this is where the money is uh yeah. so in america it's still a different kind of it's still i guess it's still that amateur sport isn't it oh pretty much now we have like our we have stipends for our lifters but it's not much i mean you can't you know retire on it but uh you know at least you can pay your bills so if you're at the olympic training center you get free room and board and medical and then there's a you know a a, a, a a monthly stipend that you get. I don't know exactly how much it is. And if you're off, from, if you're not trained at the training center, you're one of our top lifters. There's also we have stipends based on your ranking in the world, and uh, the, you know our better lifters get the more more money. But I don't. It's not. I mean, it's, it's not big money. It might be in the neighborhood of a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. So that's not that's not too big. But if you're a young person and you're training hard, well, you're not you're not going to have big expenses because you're going to be in the gym training all the time. Yeah. Sure. Uh, so to take you back to a bit of the early days, the history, um, York uh -huh. Barbell basically had the national championship locked up for 29 years, and right. the Sports Palace came along and knocked him off. Uh, when you yep. first saw that possibility, did that change your coaching, your programs, or? No, at that time, uh, you know, in the late 70s, you know, I started to have a really good team. We won the national junior championship and, I, and, you know, I, I kind of was bringing all the lifters of Northern California together for one team and, uh, and we were doing well. And so I thought, well, maybe we can beat the York Barbell someday, you know, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a primary goal. I was to, uh, like the, so my sports palace was sort of a training center for the Bay Area. So the guys from San Jose, we come up and train, and people come from different parts of the Bay Area to, to work out on Saturdays. We had great Saturday workouts, and uh, so that was we formed the team. And then around 1980, uh, you know, we, we, I kept, my team was getting second to the York Barbells. I said, well, you know, we might be able to beat these guys. Uh, and and, and see, uh, there are many other groups. The Sarah Park Barbell Club in Chicago tried to beat the York Barbell, but they couldn't. <clears throat> the LA YMCA, many, country, many clubs around the country have tried to knock off the York Barbell, but the York Barbell was kind of an all-star team. Their lifters came from all over the country. And my lifters came just from the Bay Area. And uh, so we finally beat them in, 
1982. And, uh, you know, it was a thrill. And, uh, and I won, you know, six more. We won seven national championships. And so it was kind of this little club from San Francisco took on this national club from York, Pennsylvania. And we beat them. And that's because of, because of Mario Martinez and Ken Clark and, and uh, Tom Hurts and Butch Curry and, and Pete Pine and Blair Kephart and, uh, Gip Trimper and Ron Johnson. I hope I'm not leaving anybody off, but it was, uh, you know, it was a good, good group of guys and, uh, we would get first, second, or third placings and that was enough to score team points to, uh, win for several years. What do you remember most about that 1982 national championships? Uh, well, Ken Clark had a great day. Mario Martinez didn't. Mario was in good shape and he, he won, but he just didn't have a good day. So, I mean, I was, you know, then, so being a weightlifting coach, uh, and, uh, see, Tom Hurst didn't have that good a day in which Curry was so-so. Uh, well, Kevin Winter had a good day. So, you know, being a weightlifting coach is like a roller coaster ride. You know, one, one class you're, you're a champ and the next class you're a chump, you know, and, uh, lifter does really great and the next lifter bombs out. So, so it felt good. That we won the national team championship and nobody got hurt and everybody lifted okay. But, uh, you know, when Mario didn't lift so well and he was in good shape, he should have lifted better. <clears throat> but for some reason he didn't. He, he would, he would make up for it in following years though. But anyway, so it was just a, a thrill to uh, win the national championship and, and uh, very exciting and a lot of fun. Okay. And now I want to jump up to, uh, international competition. Um, I'm really curious. Uh, what does it feel like to walk into the Olympics at a parade of nations? What's going through your head? Where are your eyes? Well, your eyes are everywhere. It's like overstimulation. There's so much going on. Uh, it's, it's really tremendous when you walk into that stadium and the whole world is watching. It's, uh, you know, and then, you know, you're one of, you know, 10,000 athletes and staff out on the field, but still it's, it's incredible. But what's even more incredible, is being in the competition with your lifters at the Olympics, especially in the A session with, with Mario Martinez and he had chances for, you know, to win medals. So you're in the A group with, you know, Anatoly Pisarenko and, uh, and you're in that A group with these great lifters and, you know, you weigh in and you're warming up and, and everybody's, it's, it's pretty, that's, that's pretty exciting. In fact, well, back in 1976 with Bruce Wilhelm and Ken, and Vasily Alexiev and Bruce Wilhelm was in second place after the snatch. That was really, really exciting. And, so that, that the, the the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies are spectacular, like nothing you can ever see, and it, it's a fantastic. But more fantastic is actually competing in the Olympic Games. And so with Bruce Wilhelm in 1976, he was in second, then he injured his knee, and he ended up in fifth place. Mario Martinez almost won first place in 1984, but he got second place because the Australian boy pulled off a great lift. Uh, and then in 1988, Mario got fourth. If one more lift, he would have got third. And uh, so, you know, that that was very, very exciting. And what was it like behind the scenes? Well, yeah, it's very, training is very serious, but there is, you know, in between, there, you know, if you're depending on where your person is in their training, if it's a big, heavy workout, they're not goofing off. But if it's maybe a light workout, maybe they're, you know, socializing with other countries, like you know, we'll socialize with the other countries that speak English. And, and so you can see the countries kind of hang out together that can communicate. You know, so the Eastern Europeans talk to each other and the Asian countries talk to each other. And, uh, you know, the, the, the English and the Canadians, uh, uh, we talk to each other. And, and, you know, so it's, but then, you know, you get a little crossover of different countries and, you know, you do, if, if you see somebody year after year, you become friends with somebody from, you know, that you don't even speak the same language, but you get, you become friends because you share, you know, the, the sport. Yeah, yeah, of course. 
Uh, it kind of reminds me, uh, there was that documentary, uh, I think it was ESPN, about uh, Naeem and, uh-huh. um, oh, I can't think, Leonidas. Right. And how they sort of had a relationship. And, you know, they had, they had great competitions. And as soon as Naeem retired, you thought, well, Leonidas is just going to just take over. But he didn't. You know, he, he, he just, I guess, you know, he, he had peaked or something. But after when I thought, oh, he's, he's going to dominate the class. But he just kind of fell down a little bit. It was like he needed Naeem. He, that was his goal to beat Naeem. And when Naeem wasn't there, then his performance dropped down. But it could have been maybe just after the years of training so hard to beat Naeem Sulemonoglu that he just, uh, you know, by the time Sulemonoglu retired, uh, Leonidas was also yeah. It's done. true. You, you do need that foil. You do need that. Yes. That. Yeah, and it was it was like you know, um, uh, Piros Dimas and uh, Mark Hooster. They were the same. It was very simple, and they they have a great admiration for each other because you know you don't dislike your opponent if he outlifts you because he just outlifted you. He didn't do anything personally to you. He just lifted more weight than you. So you have no animosity towards your competitor. It's uh, you know you you admire them at the most recent world championships. When uh, Ilya Ilyan pulled off this incredible world record to beat uh, the boy from Uzbekistan, and the Uzbekistan boy had a light lifetime PR total, and he's at the uh, press conference, and they said, "Well, what do you think?" He goes, "Ilyan is epic. You can't beat." You know, he says, "It was a great battle. I'm very satisfied with my performance. It's my best performance ever." But uh, Ilya Ilyan is epic, and so these guys, these guys have great admiration and respect yeah, yeah, for each other. Yeah, definitely, and just the. Uh level of sports sometimes so you get two competitors that are better almost than anybody that's yeah, come before yeah. um what about uh what's the village like the village that's that's a, that's a very unique situation there's all these great athletes from all over the world and and you know that like unfortunately like, you know the basketball players or the superstars like a mark spitz or the basketball you know they, they don't stay in the village because they just get swamped by uh, all the other athletes, because athletes are fans of, of sport as well, so they all kind of swarm, uh, you know, like, a, for example, Carl Lewis, uh, he can't stay in the village because all these athletes want their picture taken with them. They all want this, they all want that, because he's such a superstar. And in fact, at the opening ceremonies for uh, when we were in Seoul, he had to have bodyguards, because athletes from other countries just want well, they want their picture, they want his autograph, and things like that. So in the village, uh, you know, it, it's you, know, you see all these great athletes from all around the world, and it's um, it's it's pretty cool. And of course, when you go to the dining hall, you see the gymnasts they're eating just very minimal. They're like on they eat like rabbits, and then you see the waiters they're eating like you know lions, you know, just eating everything in sight. And and the little gymnasts are over there having a couple of grapes and lettuce, you know. And same with some of the wrestlers are on the you know. So you get to watch the different athletes how they uh, how they eat and 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 so forth. And yeah, it's it's, it's really cool. And, and and what's so cool about the village and the, and the Olympics is the whole world is there, and it's a sports festival. It's you know it's peaceful. I mean everybody's there, and they're glad to be there. It's a big moment in their life, and and it's uh you know for those couple of weeks, you know everything is kind of really really cool. Now wait now the Olympics has the problems that everything that every country has, every organization has, and that's you know sex, drugs, and uh, corruption. You know I mean it's all. All that stuff is in the Olympics, but it's, that's everywhere. You just and so you also have to have rules and regulations to try to minimize it and control it. Uh, I wonder. I mean, there's this issue about the Rio Olympics now that the the water quality and all these things. Do you think it's time maybe that um, they just localize no. it? 
you know, because other cities want it. Rio's going to, you know, they'll 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 clean it up. Every every Olympics, they talk. There's always this doomsday before. Oh, this is not good. That's not good. Like in China, you know, they were tearing down the slums to build these things. No, oh, that wasn't good. And blah blah. But China was wonderful. Uh, say, in, in in Great Britain, oh, terrorism's going to be a big problem. You know, you know, in London, it'd be easy to, for the terrorists to strike. Well, they took care of that. There's no no issues with terrorism. Uh, I mean, thing, bad things can happen, like happened in Munich, but that was because they were caught off guard. We didn't realize how. But now, since since Munich, we haven't had any real terrorist uh, issues. And uh, there's always, uh, like in, in uh, Australia, they were they were building some sports facilities. They were and they were going. The word was, oh, they're they're killing these frogs. That that's their indigenous area, and these frogs, this special frog, can can survive. And so I don't know how they, you know, that was in the news. But the, the stadium got built, and things got built. And so in in Rio, it'll be fine. It'll be great, and they'll they'll solve that problem somehow. Just like in in Beijing, you know, the smog was supposed to be a problem, and in Los Angeles, uh, you know, it's going to be traffic and smog. Well, they they, they solved these problems because everybody cooperated. And in uh, in uh, Los Angeles, you know, all the factories kind of went to half half production, so that was producing less, uh, you know, uh, toxic uh, waste products, and then they. You, the traffic, if you had an odd number, you drove on odd number days on your, if your license ended in an odd number, you drove on odd number days. And if you had an even number, you drove on even number days. So the traffic was cut in half. And so they did that in Beijing as well. And so, you know, everything, all these problems that seem insurmountable right now. And of course, critics like to just say, oh, it's going to be no good. It's going to be bad, but it'll, it'll be wonderful. It'll be terrific. Uh, which Olympics, uh, is there one you have the fondest memory? Well, of? you know the first one, uh, uh, Montreal. That was, oh, that, and that's that's why I went. That's what that's what kind of really got me hooked on it. Because I thought, well, here's the whole world right here. And I remember the the African countries pulled out because they were boycotting because South Africa played New Zealand in rugby someplace, and and it was a protest. And I thought, oh, that's a shame. And I saw the the uh, some of the African countries they were selling their stuff because they needed the money to go. You know, they, they wanted to have cash when they went home, but it was real sad, and 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 it was just. And I went to the opening ceremonies, and you know, I was just there. I was just a, a personal coach of Dan Cantori and Bruce Wilhelm, but it was uh, amazing. Uh, and there there were all kinds of problems. The stadium wasn't finished, you know, but there still it was finished enough where everything could you could do everything. And there was lots of, of you know, uh, it just everything came came together. It was, it was fantastic. Uh, I want to bring you back to the aspect of coaching and competition. Uh, you you yes. said in an interview one time, uh, walk away from the competition thinking you could lift more rather than proving you couldn't. Uh, no, no, that that that's 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 training. That was from training. Ah, okay. Yeah, they, yeah, right, yeah good, good, good that you brought that up to correct them. I, I say you want to walk out of the gym thinking you could lift more rather than proving that you couldn't. But in competition, no, no, you you've got to you know you know uh, we want to go for everything you've got. But uh, we don't want to go unrealistic. I call it uh, wishful weightlifting. We don't do wishful weightlifting. We do pragmatic weightlifting. We do weightlifting that the weights that you can lift. So uh, yeah. So so my that 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 saying refers to training. I want you to walk out of the gym thinking you could lift more rather than proving you couldn't. But in competition, you don't want to leave anything behind. But you also, if your best is 100. And you need 110. Well, you guess what? You're not going to get it. You know, so we'll go like you know 105 maybe. But uh, so you don't want to take. And I've seen you know people take very unrealistic attempts, like Guy Carlton in 1984 Olympics went for 225 for the gold. He had no chance. I mean, when he went out and proved it, if he had gone like two 
fifteen or something like that, he would have got a silver. But, he, but when he went, he went from bronze to gold, and he got from bronze. He, got, he, he, he had no chance for that weight, and so that so therefore that wasn't realistic. And you see some of that at the Olympics, where but at the Olympics again, you know, I, I don't really begrudge a guy for doing that because it's the Olympics. It's, it's your chance. It's your moment. He went for it. He had a little bit of glory while he was going for that weight, but uh, he didn't make. He wasn't even close. He had no chance. He never made that weight. And, and so, but I understand that. I understand that. But I wouldn't have done it with my lifter. In fact, Mario Martinez says we know he got silver there, and people say, "Oh, you held him back because he went six for six, set American record total." And people said, "I held him back." <laughs> just the, the Australian yeah. boy just came up with an incredible lifetime best performance himself, and so that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and speaking about the mental side, uh, is there an aspect to your coaching that prepares them psychologically, or? Yes, yes. What I uh, do is uh, uh, I, 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 you know, success breeds success. So in training, we, we, we don't, you know, if a person misses a weight three times, we move, we move on. I don't want you to you know, try it ten times and make it on the tenth time because then you're really not uh, developing your success pattern. So in training, we develop the success pattern by having lots of success with the weights that we do in training. So therefore, you're confident when you're going into the competition, into the, into the competition. And so the mental aspect is, you know, I try to prepare them uh, for the weights that, you know, I, you know, before we go into a competition, I say, you know, these are the weights that you got a shot at, and we'll see how we, we'll, we'll, how we get there will depend on the competition. Because when you go to competition, you know, uh, you can't take the weights when you want to, because you know sometimes there's a long time between your first and second attempt, or a long time between your second. A lot of other people are taking weights, so in competition. It's different, and you have to you have to do what the competition dictates. And as a coach, I'm watching and see how you're moving and how you're looking, and so that I'll select weights accordingly as well. Okay, and uh, yeah, I'm curious about this because even in local competition, uh, sometimes a lifter, you know, in the gym, you take the lift when you want to lift, but in a competition, you might wait. Uh, what are the wait times like? Does it get up to oh, oh, ten minutes? minutes? Yeah, sometimes. Oh, yeah. 20 minutes. And, and in fact, um, that's the hardest thing to do as a coach is what do you do with your lifter between your first and second attempt when you've got a long time? Some people we sometimes do high pulls, sometimes do a, you know power clean and jerk. I mean, there's a there's a and I could talk for a long time on this subject because it's 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 not easy. Uh, in fact, in Istanbul in 1994, I think we were there for the world championships. Uh, the Cuban boy had a long hit, and he would, he would, he warmed up like he did 190 his opening attempt, and then he went back and he warmed up all the way back up into 200, and then he went back down and warmed up and did it again, and you know he did he did like three or four warm ups because there was so much time in between, and and he was in such great shape that he could do that, but a lot of people that would wear them out, so uh, you have to so that that's that's one of the hardest thing in weightlifting is what do you do when you got that long wait uh, between attempts. Yeah, definitely. Because I know when I'm in the gym, I, I want to lift. I, I don't want to have to sit there and wait. Uh, so I, I can imagine as a yeah. coach. Uh, any funny or unusual anecdotes from the big competitions? Oh, boy. Uh, well, gosh, uh, let me think here. Or, or maybe you can't say. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, well, here, here's, one, here's one with Mario Martinez again. Mario Martinez did real well. If I told him he couldn't do something, it was really funny. If I said, "No, Mario, that, that you won't be able to do that. That's too heavy." That motivated him. So for the 1988 Olympics, 
uh, he, he, we, I bet him that he could not clean and jerk 232 and a half. I bet him $200. And, we got a, and, and you know, eventually I want him to do it, right? But, right. That, uh, so I've been, so he said, okay, you know, so, so then we got four, we got, and everybody else has been against Mario making this, uh, 232. So we had a big, big pool going for Mario to, you know, the 232 and a half kilo clean and jerk. And, uh, and so he went out and he made it, the American record. And, uh, but it was it was funny. Instead of people, you know, saying, "Come on, we all want you to do it," he did better if people bet against him. He like, you know, he liked that. Of course, he made made himself four hundred dollars, and that was motivating as well. But uh, but so I with Mario, I always said, Mario, "Mario, I don't think you that, that not today. I don't think you do that," and that would motivate him to do it, whether it was in training or in competition. And uh, so that, that that was kind of funny. How that was a different approach. Usually, you don't tell people they can't do something if you're coaching them. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to encourage you. Uh, speaking of Mario, uh, at the 84 Olympics, uh, you were coaching him, but you were also the competition right, director. Right. Uh, how was it well, juggling those responsibilities? Well, that, that, you know, that was it was it was tough, and and it didn't it didn't adversely affect Mario, but it might have adversely affect Ken Clark because I I would come home every weekend and coach him on on Saturday and Sunday, and then I would fly back down to L.A. to do my competition business, and at the Olympics. Uh, you know, we'd arrange their training when I would, when I could be in the warm-up room and, wa- and watch their training. But it might have affected Ken Clark because I, I didn't watch every one of his work. I wrote his workouts and he followed them and he did okay. But, uh, the fact that I wasn't there the last three months, uh, I was in LA and I was commuting back and forth that, that was, might have uh, adversely affected him. But it didn't, you know, Mario was fine. And, um, uh, you know, so it was, uh, it was tough. I mean, I was, you know, going, 18 hours a day, you know, doing the Olympic, uh, organizing business and then doing the coaching business. And it was a, <clears throat> it was a, a thrilling and exciting time. Yeah, of course. Uh, how is it being in an administrative role, uh, whether it's with USAW or the International Weightlifting Federation? Well, I got into administration way back in the seven, late seventies because I figured, well, there's no representation on the West Coast representing these, you know, our area. So I, I better, get on the board because, you know, when you're on the, these boards, you always vote for, you know, the people that in your area. And so the, the West Coast wasn't getting involved, well represented, so I got involved to make sure that rules, regulations, qualifying things and all that uh, were, you know, the West the West Coast was con- being considered and being represented. And then uh, I got more and more involved and I became president of the Federation and, you know, they were representing the whole country. And then I got on the international board and, you know, I'm doing all of that as well. And and so it's um, it was very interesting. It's very frustrating because the longer you're in the administration, the more people uh, don't like you. Because when you first get in, everybody likes you. But then when you're in a long time, you're always telling somebody no, they can't do something. And so then they don't like you anymore. So that's it's hard to stay in there a long time because you got to you know rule against people from time to time. And and but I, I I'm very very happy with my uh, weightlifting experience as a coach, uh, as an administrator for the Olympic Games, as a uh, president of USA Weightlifting on the International Executive Board. It was an incredible experience, and I'm uh, not, you know, I would sometimes I think about jumping back into it again, but I go, no, you know, what I want to do now is I'm, uh, I want to, I'm trying to finish a book. You know, I've got a great story on weightlifting, and so I'm trying to, I'm working on that, and I'm trying to put my energy into that. Is that uh, more biographical or? Well, it's, it's going to be my, you know, my experience. In other words. Uh, uh, how I trained, uh, you know, and basically 
if, uh, it'll be just it'll be a combination of the articles I write for Milo magazine. But that's what you know. So it'll be training programs. It'll be my experiences with Mario Martinez and Bruce Wilhelm and Ken Patera and Ken Clark and and uh, Dan Takauchi, the guy that was lifting 80 kilos when he was 83 years old. You know, I mean, uh, things like that. And so, so it'll be very interesting. To, you know, also my you know, my it'll be biographical in that uh, how you know you know how I evolved to be a coach and how well, you know and how I coached people and why and. And there'll be something in there for everybody because if you're a master lifter, I've got the master experience of a junior lifter. Well, I started with, you know, Tom Nguyen and Ken Clark were my juniors that went all the way. So, you know, I've, I'm, I've got probably the most experience of anybody in the United States on, on weightlifting. I mean, you got Tommy Kono who's got the gold medals and, and the world records and he was international and all that stuff. But, but I was never a champion. I was, but I've coached. More champions, and uh, I coached ten Olympians, the fourteen Olympic teams, and I was involved in the beginning of the women's weightlifting uh, program. So, so you know, I, I, right. I you know, I, I had like Ken Clark on the very first junior world team, and I had uh, Rachel Silverman and Giselle Shepard on the very first women's world team, and so I, I have really uh, experienced all of the modern weightlifting stuff. From the, you know, we used to have the press snatch and clean and jerk, and it was all steel weights, and now it's the president now is just snatch and clean and jerk and the weights of bumpers and rubber bumpers and, and there's all, in the United States we, we're vast, you know, we almost have as many women lifters as we have men and it's, uh, you know, the, the changes in the sport in my lifetime have been incredible. But it's all, all been great and it's all about your athleticism and your strength and your power and, and all of that. You gotta get that bar over your head all by yourself without anybody helping you. Uh, when do you think you'll finish that book? Well, you know, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've, uh, I've been working on it, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting run, I'm running out of time. I'm going to be seventy pretty soon, so I've got to finish it pretty soon. <laughs> I, 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 I can still remember that stuff, you know. But I, 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 I would, I would love to get it done this year or next year at the latest. But uh, you know, it's hard to say because I'm just, I've got, yeah, I just got, you know, I plug away at it, and then I, then I put it aside for a while, and I don't get back to it for a while. So, but anyway, it, it, stay, stay tuned. <laughs> okay, we'll do. Yeah. Do you still uh, find yourself learning new things? Oh yeah, well, and, and that's um, especially you know CrossFit has been so big for USA weightlifting, and maybe around the world. How about in your country, CrossFit? Uh, well, about two years ago, we had our first CrossFit gym in Istanbul, CrossFit Thirty Four, uh-huh. and the gym that I'm working at, coaching at, is CrossFit Balaban, and uh, it's yeah, it's it's definitely becoming more popular. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I you know, I, I think it's wonderful, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a way of getting people to train hard. Now, you know, I've been in this business since 1968, and actually been in and I always trained hard, and I, you know, I did all, you know, when I was training, I, and when, not just me, but the, the gym I went to, Alex's gym, we wrestled, we hand balanced, we weight lifted, we ran, we, you know, we, we were into, we called it physical culture, but we would take hours to do it, and it was, it was, it was not as, as organized as, um, uh, the CrossFit is, and CrossFit has done a great job of organizing and marketing it, and they've had a lot of growing pains, but they, they're getting better and better all the time, and I'm a big fan of it. I think, boy, if I was a young guy, I'd, I'd, I'd eat it up, you know, and, um, but uh, it's it's great, and it's been so great for weightlifting, and we're, where we think it's going to be even better for weightlifting in the United States is the children of these CrossFitters will be encouraged to do weightlifting, because everybody that does weightlifting in the United States today, they're not encouraged to do that. They say, oh, why do you want to do weightlifting? You should be playing tennis or golf or baseball. 
But I think the children of the CrossFitters will be encouraged to weightlift. And then that's where, you know, when you get more numbers, uh, more people doing it, that's how you get the, you know, your, your Mario Martinez's or your Shane Hammonds or your Oscar Chaplin's or CJ Cummings and things like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the people that I see doing snatches or power cleans with CrossFit, I know that if there wasn't this CrossFit gym, they would never have been exposed to it. Exactly. And I get so many people that I'm training. I'm so busy training different people, the 25 to 35-year age group, that they started with CrossFit, but they realized they'd rather just do snatches and clean and jerks and, and all the related exercises to Olympic lifting because they like, no, they don't like, I just gotta, you gotta do a 45-minute workout that varies from day to day and you never know what you're gonna do, which is good. But my, my, a lot of people like to have a systematic plan. I'm going to the gym, and I'm snatching and cleaning, jerking and squatting, and maybe I'll do it two hours, maybe I'll do it in an hour. You know, but when you do CrossFit, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's very disciplined. You got to do it, uh, at a certain time and, and, uh, you know, and you never know, and it's random. But it's good, you know, but I'm not, not, that's just, it's just different. And a lot of people like that. They like that they don't have the structure. They just go into whatever they're supposed to do that day. But in weightlifting, there's more structure. And it's, um, you know, you you don't have to be rushing through the workout. You can take your time. And uh, how is the Sports Palace team today? Well, the Sports Palace, yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, we're we're fine, but I don't have the, you know, we're not winning championships, even on the local level. This is the next phase that I've gotten into now, is that I'm so proud, like yourself, you're out there doing weightlifting and coaching and teaching. Uh, Kevin Dory has got a great program in San Francisco. He's kind of taken over the Northern California in terms of his team wins all the championships. He's got a great program going. Uh, there's Dave Spitz in, uh, uh, San Ramon. He's got Cal Strength and he's got a great program going. And then there's Freddie Miles up in Petaluma. He's got a great program. And all these people started with me. So, and then like yourself, and there's so many people that have, you know, I like to say my fingerprints on them. So I'm very <laughs> pleased now that, okay, the sports pilots may not be the champs. But there are people that I that started with me that are out there producing the champs, and so uh, that's that's very rewarding to have contributed to someone's uh, involvement and love of the sport of weightlifting. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that it it impacted my life in a huge way. I mean, I used to walk by your gym there, and you know, see it. I knew it. Uh, I used to watch. Uh, uh, just in the seventies, that weekend show that would have. Uh, Oh, maybe light sports. Yeah, yeah, lightweight versus heavyweight. Um, oh, yeah. And then when I finally stepped in there and started doing it, uh, you know, this is what uh, 27 years old. Then I'm 45 now. Uh-huh. So it's it's become a big part of my life, and and yeah. I got to say I learned a lot from you, and I thank you for that. Well, and I'm so uh, you know pleased that you're carrying it on. Like I said. I've, I've got hundreds of people, like I said, I've got, got my fingerprint on them because I, they, I gave them something and they're, they're doing it their way, but there's a little bit of my way in everything that they do. Uh, and, just, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I just say, you know, so I'm, a lot of people may consider me old school, you know, but guess what? In way that the old school still, still works. Uh, just a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the American program? I mean, it seems like China is dominating the world stage, uh, at least in certain weight classes. China uh, and Russia. China and Russia. Russia yeah. Do you see America? I mean, will we ever be a dominant force? Well, not until we you can make a lot of money in weightlifting. And and, and I use this example of you know the University of Alabama. Let's well, use Ohio State. I think Ohio State is the number one football team in the United States right now for college. Mm-hmm. And there's you know and they've been and there's San Jose State just down the, down the road from me. And 
Center of the State would never beat uh, Ohio State or even Alabama in 100 years because they don't get the same athlete. Uh, and see, the, the kids that play at San Jose State, and they're good, but not well, not a one could make Ohio State or Alabama team. See, they, so that's so it's where the emphasis is. So Alabama and Ohio, they go out there and they recruit the best, and they fight over the best athletes they can get. And that's the same way it is in China and Russia. They get the best athletes they can get. Well, we and, and we get, like I say, the kid has to walk into the gym and want to do it, and somehow we have to arrange. Uh, so he can get to the competition, get the proper training and all that stuff. And so someone, you know, that we, that we're, we're a walk-on uh, program versus a professional program. And professionals, like in China, they've got for every gold medal those kids won, there's 10,000 kids out there that probably, you know, busted their body trying to get, just make a, make a, a, a provincial team or something. Okay. There's thousands. So it's a big sport in those countries and they're reward, the athletes are rewarded. Recruited. Developed and rewarded. Yeah, I, I think that the recruited, rewarded part is probably the key there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how about technology? Um, I see all these apps, you know, record yourself. You can see the trajectory of the weight or your golf swing. Um, what do you think about this kind or this kind of analysis? Is it, or is it more paralysis by analysis? Well, it's, it's, some people, they're overthinking it. Some people get so into the minute details. And my, my, I have another saying. Determination trumps technique. Uh-huh. If you're determined, you'll make that weight, even with poor technique. And I'll see that you see that at the at the world and Olympic level. Uh, the, the guy that won the recent Olympics in the 105 kilo class, granted, Klokov and Nakayev weren't there, but uh, the guy from Ukraine who won, his technique is far, far from what you would teach anybody. But he's an Olympic champion because he was he's strong and he's determined. So I, I think you got to you know always be you got to go for the best technique you can get. Now when I teach weightlifting, I teach by the textbook, but I take what I can get, and I know that not everybody can do it. You know, so I don't I don't beat somebody up because you know I mean, just drill, drill, drill on their technique because they're not capable. You know, they just can't. They're, they, you know, their body levers aren't right, or uh, they're just not fast enough or athletic enough. You know, so you just have them just do the best they can. So yes, I I think. It's, you know, the people are beating the deck, the, uh, analyzing and beating the technique to death, which is okay because, it, you know, that means there's a lot of people out there, uh, you know, doing weightlifting and trying to do the best they can. And, and, that, and that's good. We've got people talking about weightlifting because, you know, it's the same in, in golf. You know, you go, there's a million golf instructors out there and like, like Tiger Woods is a good example. He's always messing with his technique, you see. But, uh, you know, it's not, not, he's not getting any better. His technique, it's not, his technique's not his problem. It's something else. But anyway, so I'm, Definitely uh, a believer in technique, uh, but I also know that not everybody can have fantastic technique. They're just not good enough, not athletic enough. So I always try to help people have the best technique possible for them. And that's what, you know, one thing about my coaching is I kind of undercoach. I don't get, you know, I, let, I give little bits and pieces here and there and let them figure it out as we go along. Get, you know, the, there is paralysis due to analysis. And then there's people that have wonderful, beautiful technique, but, hey, they're not lifting big weights. And if, if you want to lift little weights with perfect technique, okay, that's the fine. If that's, if that's your goal, no problem. But if you want to lift big weights, well, technique is important, but determination is more important. Ah, okay, excellent. Uh, all right, Jim, I'm going to let you go now. Okay. Uh, it was great talking to you. Great yes. having you. And uh, I hope I can get you back on, uh, maybe for some shorter ones. Where we focus yeah. on sort of like you were saying about the Milo articles. Yeah, yeah um, we can. 
do something. Because actually, maybe I guess, in fact, my next my article, which I'm going to write shortly, is uh, people say, what, what's your, I've got, I've got a name for my latest training methodology. It's called, uh, let me see, I'm going to get it right here, uh, in, uh, Intuitive Undulating Periodization. Yeah, that sounds very academic, but what it basically <laughs> means, <laughs> you know, just you train according to how you look and how you feel. And you go, you know, you train heavy and you train light and you do it in a cyclical form. See, so it's very, very simple. I just came up with that term to sound intellectual. <laughs> yeah, why not? They'll, they'll have you over at Berkeley next week. You'll be. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, uh, intuitive undulating periodization. All right. I'm going to repeat that as my mantra. You heard it, you heard it here first. <laughs>